You're listening to Program to Chill, a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon Gong. This is episode 29, Krupp Steel, part 12, Alfred and Arndt Krupp, or Fail Sun Supremacy. Today I'm recording from Moscow. This episode is brought to you by Otis Elevators. When you rise, we shine. In the 1960s, Alfred Krupp might have been worth more than the collective worth of the Rockefellers, although their wealth was definitely more well-diversified and established. He was, at one point, one of a very small group who could have actually written a check for a billion dollars, and then his empire collapsed. What happened? Why, that's a very interesting story, and one that still has a lot of unresolved questions. And I'm still not sure that I have a full grasp on it, but let's get into it. Before the collapse of the Krupp concern in the early 1960s, Holocaust victims started to organize and seek monetary damages for the crimes they endured. Successful suits had been brought, usually by Jews, against West Germany and against IG Farben and the companies that formed out of IG Farben. And they turned their sights to Krupp, understandably enough. Krupp faced a well-organized and financed civil suit, and in response, they set up a fund to pay out victims. Reportedly, they were encouraged to set up the fund by John J. McCloy. There were two major problems with the victim fund, and whether intentional or not, I think we can judge maybe in a, in a minute, but the Krupp company dramatically miscalculated how many survivors there were and they only made provisions for Jewish victims. Now, there were way more Jewish survivors than they planned for, and of course it was not just Jews losing their property and being used as slave labor. At the end of the day, the Krupp company paid less than one-fifth of one percent of their known wealth, mind you, their known wealth, to survivors. When non-Jews reached out to seek compensation, the Krupp company blamed the Jewish survivors for taking all of the settlement money, somehow finding a way to stoke more anti-Semitism as, as if they couldn't just choose to pay more to the victims. These payouts, of course, are an admission of guilt, not that we really need more proof of that. And somehow, Krupp won a huge PR boost and good press for setting up a fund for Jewish victims because as we know, there is no justice in this world. Which, when I say that, I'm making a theological statement. I am not making, I am not trying to just mindlessly repeat an aphorism, right? The press and the West German government made it very hard to find Alfred Krupp's sentence or good information about the Krupp trial. In that curious blend of amnesia and denial that you see also in the American South, after the Civil War. The transcripts were never translated into German either. But go on and tell me about how good West Germany is in facing their Nazi past. Now let's talk about Alfred's fail son for a second, Arndt von Bullen und Halbach, the child from Alfred's first marriage, his only child. Arndt had no interest in running the Krupp Empire, although he was going to inherit it. So there's not as much to discuss with him as with all of the other Krupps. If we were to make a taxonomy of fail sons and fail daughters, Arndt is one of my favorite types. 
the International Playboy. This is one of my favorite types because if you look at them based on what they actually do, they are mechanisms for redistributing wealth to needy sources like wasteoid friends, hangers-on, entourages, yacht builders, champagne vineyards, equestrian societies. They're usually good for supporting some artists somewhere, and so on. And in most cases, the harm they do is limited to partying too hard, sometimes a drunk driving accident, recreational drug use, and maybe some human trafficking. Like, don't get me wrong, it's still bad, but it might actually be less harmful to the world than, say, another Alfred Krupp. Plus, international playboys, or playgirls, not to be gender normative here, international playboys are usually pretty fun. Like, Arndt probably came up with only one truly witty sentence in his whole life, but it's pretty good. When a journalist asked him if he ever thought of getting a job, Arndt said, that's the last thing I need. Which is a far cry from the very common aphorism that Fritz Pedophile Island Krupp coined, which entered the German lexicon. The, the saying being, the goal of work shall be the general welfare. Work then is blessing, work then is prayer. Which, of course, is the most German sentiment I've ever heard. Anyway, Arndt Krupp was gay, which I mention only because his fortune was based on the quite conservative Catholic German workers in Essen, and, of course, also based on a mountain of skulls. But Arndt Krupp being gay was certainly one of a host of factors in him not wanting to live in Essen or to take over the company. I mean, not to say that gay people can't run companies, but, you know, it's conservative Germany in the 1960s. Keep that in mind. And, of course, he didn't have to, so why work? Arndt Krupp would spend most of his time in Brazil, which, lol for Germans in Brazil, and he also spent a lot of time in Miami and Marrakesh, which I guess are two other gay hotspots. And to stay active, Arndt ran a plantation, or said he ran a plantation, right, in Brazil. Which, if running a plantation in Brazil sounds bad, just wait till you hear how a young model described his life on Arndt Krupp's Brazilian estate. The young model said it was like life in the Old South, gone with the wind, with Arndt playing Clark Gable's role. Lovely. Sure want to check out that. Arndt Krupp would jet all over with Prince Turn und Taxis, ding ding ding, Princess Auersberg, and Prince Hohenlohn, of the Hohenzollern, right? Among many other actual royal, you know, nobles. Now, as far as we know, and I have no reason to doubt this, so I'm not casting aspersions or anything, from what we know, all of Arndt's lovers were of legal age, and there was no overt blasphemy. So I guess the Krupps were making progress as a family, morally speaking. But not that much more, because Arndt had a private airplane, yachts, custom-built Rolls Royces, and properties across three continents. The Krupp company used its clout to get him good press, they kept saying, remember, he's just a youth, echoing the excuses they used for Alfred Krupp, except, you know, instead, they were trying to justify his partying, 
rather than war crimes. And, of course, would you believe 1960s West Germany was more scandalized by partying and not working than by war crimes? Germans are deranged, right? So in 1967, Arndt was photographed at one of his decadent parties wearing a scarlet diagonal ribbon, which was a military cross given by some underdeveloped nation, some third world country. And him wearing this at some stupid party, the photograph was ran in the West German press and it caused public outrage. It's almost hard to explain why this should upset the West German public, but I guess they take goo-gaws like that seriously. Either way, it was a huge PR debacle because I guess an entire life of wasteful depravity and sloth is one thing, but God help us if you disrespect a made-up medallion from another country. Now, the timing of that photograph was pretty bad because the Krupp concern was on the verge of collapsing and nobody realized it, or nobody outside the company realized it. Referring to their period of unprecedented growth, their CFO later said, if we had been forced to open our books, we would have been finished. Our situation was far more desperate than anyone could have guessed. By 1967, Alfred Krupp was forced to submit to a comptroller and found to owe over $700 million to 263 different banks and insurance companies. There might not have ever been anything like this in industrial history. The Krupp concern was insanely over-leveraged. I see that there are two ways to explain the collapse. There's the traditional business class explanation, which has merits, and there's the parapolitical explanation. I think they're both true, but let's talk about them both and see if we can't come to perhaps some kind of dialectical fusion of these two reasons. So the first reason, the traditional business class explanation, is that Krupp was insanely overleveraged, which is when a company takes on too much debt and they cannot make their payments. Now, this was certainly true. It was undeniably true. And when steel prices went down and credit went tight, that's what killed them. When Fortune magazine wrote about Krupp's collapse, their journalist wrote of Krupp, because he was a salesman rather than a financial man with an eye out for profitability, a considerable portion of his enemies came to be concentrated in the powerful banking community. Now, this might sound like we're headed into anti-Semitic territory, but we are not, actually. Krupp was taken down by German banks in the 1960s, which were not controlled by Jews in any meaningful sense. What we're talking about is a much more normal, but still quite interesting conflict that exists between heavy industries, class interests, and the interests of the financial class. Before the collapse, journalists reflecting the financial ruling elite wrote in the German newspaper Handelsblatt the following telling analysis. I always compare this kind of modern economic leader with a man who has a brilliant mind and powerful muscles, but who disregards his circulatory system. He looks healthy, glowing, in the pink. Suddenly he suffers a heart attack, he falls ill or dies. The danger of such financial coronaries is especially dire in firms which do not publish their balance sheets. They are not subject to medical, or in this case, public control. Thus, they cannot be warned in time. Unquote. For what it's worth, this is true. A company like Krupp needed 
to utilize debt to stay healthy, and if they don't, they are subject to a sudden heart attack if conditions suddenly tighten. The heart attack came, in this case, when steel prices went down and credit also went tight. That's the final cause of the heart attack. Another journalist wrote, One thing must be clear. Liquidity is expensive, but illiquidity much more so, because it destroys the very existence of a firm. Now, of course, the bankers are saying this, right? But if industrialists can get away with not using financialized debt, it usually works out better for them in the long run. Of course, this is the perennial cost-benefit analysis made by every business. We saw Henry Ford dealing with these same calculations back in episode 8, when he forced his franchisees to take on debt to avoid taking debt himself. Now, perhaps Krupp could have, cut, could have tried to cut in German banks into some of these third-world country infrastructure deals. It certainly would have made the banks happier, and then the bankers might have been more invested in keeping his company alive. Then again, that might not have worked, since the deals were already more costly than working with the Soviets, and many of these countries were already dealing with the banks in the first place, so who knows. It's hard to make these judgments, you know, many decades later. And of course, if Krupp had any access to hidden wealth, it was probably already reintegrated back into the company to fund their legitimate expansion, as they realized that none of them were going to go to prison or have to ever pay anything resembling true justice to their victims. Right? So, the hidden wealth presumably couldn't have saved them or they would have done it, right? This is where we need to dip into the parapolitical side to perhaps understand what else was going on leading to their collapse. There are limitations to the traditional business press, business class explanation of things. So, as the Krupp company expanded all over the world, they were not unaware that one of their biggest, most profitable markets lay immediately to the east, in Eastern Europe. And from what I can tell, the Krupp company did not do the right calculations in figuring out the political costs of dealing with the Soviets. In 1958, Krupp sent representatives to Moscow for, a preliminary, for preliminary talks on infrastructure and factory projects here, including Alfred's right-hand man, Bertold Beitz. Bertold Beitz is very interesting, but I cut his whole plotline because I was tired of talking about the Krupps. But upon the return of Bertold Beitz, Chancellor Adenauer issued a public statement calling into question the national reliability of Bites, which, short of actual prosecution, is about as nuclear of an attack as you can make on a private company just putting them on blast like that. Then, ironically trying to help, or perhaps not, the USSR issued a statement of support saying that they gave Bites a clean bill of health, and the Polish premier described the representative as an outstanding emissary of Germany, for 20 years a tried and proven friend of my country. There was also a pretty funny interaction between Beitz and Adenauer, reported in Der Spiegel, where Beitz was described as meeting top Soviet leadership. Quote, Arching his brows, Beitz whispered in mock surprise, Those people actually have fingernails as clean as ours. Adenauer, unamused, shot back, Why not wear a red carnation in your lapel, Herr Beitz? Bites replied, sputtering, saying, 
something of building bridges between east and west, and, turning to those around him, said plaintively, I cannot understand these critics. Is there anything wrong with shaking hands with a customer who has just bought 50 million marks worth of equipment from you? I am a simple businessman. I want to know nothing about politics, and I want, and I would like to stay as far away from political questions. Let Adenauer handle his diplomacy, and let us handle our trade. Free enterprise doesn't pay much attention to political viewpoints while the governments change. Now, there's a long list of companies that were allowed, quote-unquote, to work with the Soviets, ranging from the Kochs, Arm and Hammer, the Bechdel Company, the Rockefellers, a long list of others. The British traded with the Soviets for, like, the entirety of the Cold War, setting aside ideology which businessmen have never had a problem doing unless something's affecting their bottom line. There is no reason why the Krupps shouldn't have been able to work with the Soviet Union either, unless, perhaps, they didn't adequately lobby, a.k.a. bribe, and or cut in the right people into their deals to avoid criticism. And that included letting intelligence agencies use them for cover, right? Presumably, then, the Krupp concern hadn't done that until they did. Sometime later, Der Spiegel reported that Beitz and Adenauer were now getting along. Quote, Conrad Adenauer and Bertolt Beitz conferred privately for 45 minutes about his trip to the Soviet Union. The opportunity to exchange views with the Chancellor was undoubtedly a deep source of satisfaction for Beitz, the diplomat. For Beitz, the diplomat. Until that time, personal relations between the leader of the government and the Krupp spokesman had been very cool. Unquote. Krupp's representatives were now traveling all over behind the Iron Curtain, and Moscow accepted a permanent Krupp mission in Moscow. In other words, the USSR was allowing spies all over Eastern Europe. In 1962, Alfred Krupp sent bites over to John J. McCloy's office overlooking Manhattan's river at One Chase Manhattan Plaza. They were meeting to discuss setting up a foundation for the Krupp Empire. And as of this period of time, foundations were quite rare in Germany. McCloy, of course, was a trustee on the Rockefeller Foundation and the chairman of the Ford Foundation. As a side note, dear listeners, the Ford Foundation is what it pretends to be, a real charitable foundation, but it was also an ideological weapon during the Cold War and it was a cover for covert action as well. Before Alan Dulles was named as CIA director, he told Nelson Rockefeller that his backup wish or desire would be chairman of the Ford Foundation to give you a clue as to how much of an inside player John J. McCloy was and to give you an indication of what the Ford Foundation's really like, right? And of course, the Ford Foundation continues to play important roles in counterinsurgency in the United States and in color revolutions abroad. So the Krupp people started meeting with Ford Foundation figures. Interestingly, Bites also consulted with Robert F. Kennedy, who was at that point the Attorney General. They discussed setting up a foundation as well. This is a very interesting period because they were looking at setting up a foundation before they knew they would collapse. Or at least, you know, did they know that they were going to collapse? Good question, right? 
it's interesting to note that the public started to get some indication that trouble lay ahead. The London Sunday Times published a headline titled, Finance Clouds Over Krupp Empire, making clear that there were problems. The Krupp Empire was so large and the legal knots were so complex that they set a goal of 1967 as the date by which the foundation could be completed. Mind you, they started in 1962, so like five years, right? While this was going on, Nikita Khrushchev was cozying up with Bites, Alfred Krupp's man, drinking vodka and gifting him hunting rifles. They cut business deals, including a down payment of 2,700,000 gold rubles to the Krupp company. And Khrushchev also struck Alfred Krupp's name from Moscow's war criminal list. Ironically, though, it seems like the Soviet Union and the GDR did not listen to Khrushchev as they kept on denouncing him. Or, you know, you could read that another way, as the top players know the truth and then the propaganda machine runs on, right? GDR printers kept making posters identifying the world's warmongers as Wall Street, Rockefeller, und Krupp. Which, I mean, true. Now, as the press looked into the Krupp company's pivot into Eastern Europe, it was revealed that many of the deals to the communists were issued at bargain basement prices. Some deals gave the communists up to 15 years to pay with, a, with interest as low as 4.5%. Quite generous terms, in other words. Since Krupp was such a large slice of the West German economy, this is essentially, this is basically like the Reds getting a quarter of all West German long-term investment credit while only buying 4.1% of its exports. This is a bizarre situation. It's almost inexplicable, in fact. This, among other factors, is what led to the crunch that destroyed the Krupp company. Some people accused Nikita Khrushchev of laying a trap for the Krupp company. Others blamed Bites for breach of fiduciary duty in brokering these deals. But still, at the end of the day, it's hard not to just blame Alfred Krupp. He is the sole proprietor after all. In retrospect, Bites said, we were rolled over by events. The West German press called, their, called the Krupp prosperity a glittering soap bubble. The crunch happened during an economic slump in 1965, when the demand for steel suddenly dropped off and there was a, a sudden credit crunch. Krupp was stuck in it, though as we've said, many people were forecasting this possibility. American observers were shocked at how bad things got. They couldn't believe that German banks would just keep lending and lending and lending with no hope of repayment. Of course, this made sense to Germans, as Krupp was uniquely close to the German state. Nobody thought that the Krupp company would be allowed to go under. And it's important to remember that Krupp, being a privately held company, did not issue annual financial statements so they were something of a black box. And it is kind of rare for companies this big to be completely black boxes like that. Germany's five house banks eventually forced Krupp to provide them with consolidated confidential balance sheets. It did not reassure them at all. It showed that Krupp owed 5.2 billion marks, or something like 2.2 billion U.S. dollars valued in that day's currency. The Krupp company owed so much 
that it was now the bank's problem more than it was Alfred's problem. They were already starting to call Alfred Krupp the greatest failure in the history of European finance. Yet he was still technically a billionaire, and it was entirely possible it was entirely possible for things to turn around. If the economy had turned around, things could have changed very quickly. Another reason for Krupp's collapse was because German tax courts removed the intercompany transaction tax that had applied to the Krupp company under the Lex Krupp. That is to say, Krupp had tons of subsidiaries, right? And if one subsidiary sold coal, you know, one's a coal mine, one's a steel foundry, and if they sell coal to the steel foundry, under U.S. law, the way things work, they would have to pay taxes on that transaction still, even though both are owned by the same people. Basically, Germany was allowing them to avoid paying taxes on transactions like that, but they eventually closed that loophole. When they closed the loophole, it created gigantic tax liabilities, which only exacerbated their cash flow problems. As more and more banks started to demand to look at the balance sheets, and Krupp's position got worse and worse, and as his entire empire was on the verge of collapsing in the most spectacular fashion possible, what did Alfred Krupp choose to do? In true Howard Hughes fashion, he hit the bricks. He ran away. He chose then, of all times, to take a trip to Africa to go shoot wild game. While he was gone, on March 1967, 28 of the most important figures in German finance gathered at Dusseldorf's Dresdner Bank to debate and vote on the Krupp problem. Theoretically, 235 more presidents of insurance companies and smaller banks could have also voted, but they literally couldn't have fit in the boardroom. They voted to extend $75 million in new credit to the Krupp company. They voted to extend all outstanding Krupp obligations until the end of 1968, and they voted to offer Krupp $100 million of new credit. If Alfred's books balanced on December 13, 1968, normal export financing would be resumed. In exchange for these terms, Alfred Krupp agreed to turn his company into a stock corporation and to basically give around 50% of his stock up to these banks. It would have been a massive L for Alfred, a huge personal defeat. Now that Alfred Krupp was not in complete control, he didn't want to play anymore. He didn't want to run the company at all. He announced his abdication at a formal ceremony at Via Wegel on April 1st, 1967. An April Fool's Day joke, of course. Alfred Krupp, at this ceremony, spoke about the great role that the concept of social responsibility has played in the history of his family and his concern. Then he got emotional. He said, I say openly, I am proud of it. I have thus decided to transform the firm into a stock corporation over a foundation. Which is to say, he was turning it into a corporation that would be owned by a foundation. Alfred Krupp planned for the profits from the foundation to go towards furthering scientific research in the Reich. Alfred Krupp thanked the banks, thanked the government, thanked Bites, and his son Arndt, without whose renunciation of inheritance, quote-unquote, the end of the dynasty would have been impossible to plan. 
More on that in a second. So you know those stories of couples who live together for decades, and then when one of them dies, the other dies days or weeks later? Almost like they're heartbroken, and they just give up their will to live. So strong was their love for each other. Well, on July 30th, 1967, Alfred Krupp died just four months after giving away his company. Somehow, even with Alfred Krupp, the cause of death was suspicious yet again, though not as much as, you know, prior Krupps. Different spokesmen for the company announced different illnesses somehow, though they eventually agreed that it was bronchial cancer, caused by literally chain-smoking camel cigarettes for like his entire life. Reportedly, they did not find a tumor until it was so far gone that treatment was pointless. On December 31st, 1968, the Krupp concern ceased to exist. It was transformed from a private company to a foundation. A certified public accountant took over operations of the Krupp company, and they finally divested from coal. Now, I can hear you, dear listener. You're saying, wait, wait. What happened to Arndt Krupp? I was worried too. And so was the German public. The last thing Arndt needed, after all, was to get a job. Luckily, Alfred Krupp set up the foundation in such a way as to guarantee Arndt Krupp get a guaranteed quarter million dollars a year for the rest of his life in exchange for his inheritance. Ironically, this annuity probably ended up being worth more than the ownership of Krupp after a certain point. And all proceeds going to charity, <laughs> you know, went after giving this cut to Arndt. Arndt Krupp spent the rest of his life partying and ended up an alcoholic. I guess sometimes he would hang out with Keith Richards. Despite his allowance, he was in debt at the time of his death. And at the end of the day, that's what it's all about, right? Literally piling up mountains of skulls so your idiot playboy child never has to work a day in his life. The capitalist dream. In 1988, Tyson AG merged with Krupp to make Tyson Krupp. To this day, they live on. In 2020, they made revenue of some 20 billion euros. They make a wide range of products, the most visible in the United States possibly being elevators. Though programmed to chill, rides very hard for Otis elevators. So when I started this series, I did not expect it to sprawl into 12 episodes, but I couldn't stop talking about different topics. I didn't want to talk about them this much, but it's a great occasion to explore different ideas, right? Or at least I thought so. Opinions may vary. But let's try to draw some lessons from this cursed family. So without revealing too much about myself, I took business classes in college, and I found them to be pretty bad. I realized that... You know, experiences vary. What's that tweet? The great one that goes like, business class is the professor writing profit equals revenue minus costs on the board, and everyone is taking notes like it's actual school. That's pretty much my experience with business classes too. I remember reading my textbooks, which, lol, I didn't need to actually read my textbooks in retrospect. And I remember reading these textbooks and seeing just like these hilariously stupid frameworks that different professors or NGOs or institutional bodies would create in order to analyze things. They would usually be very broad and stupid, like the TV show Silicon Valley's conjoined triangle of success. Well, since we're talking about a family company, I thought I would make a programmed-to-chill 
Matrix of Business Success. Now, I know this is an audio medium. I know this. But imagine with me, in your mind's eye, a square with four squares within it, a matrix. And by each one, left to right, one, two, three, four, the first square in the top left quadrant reads socialists, scientific, or otherwise. On the top right, it reads quadrant two, nationalists, fascist, or not. In the bottom left quadrant, three, spiritual slash Christian. In the bottom right quadrant, number four, liberal slash businessman. These are the four quadrants of the matrix of business success. They are four different frameworks for looking at the Krupp family's crimes. Don't worry about the axis. It probably says something like success, and then the unit of measure is like, I don't know, karma or something. Don't worry about it. Let's go through different crimes listed out in each of these 12 episodes briefly. Yes, briefly. And we will slap them on the program to chill matrix of business success, and we will see how the company ranks, okay? And trust me, this is very scientific. Don't say, hey, most of these crimes could fit under all four. Don't message me. Don't DM me about that. This is science, okay? This is business school. I am an accredited professor, so let's roll with it. In episode 18, we saw how the Krupp family fortune originally came from buying up half the town after the Black Plague swept through. That's definitely going in box one as a crime, according to a socialist framework. Like, this was a crime of primitive accumulation. In episode 19, the Krupps sold weapons directly to nations fighting against the Prussian and Austrian states. Yeah, that's going in box two as a crime under a nationalist-minded framework because the Krupps literally sold weapons that killed Prussian soldiers, which they kept doing, okay? In episode 20, we saw how Fritz Krupp was a huge pederast. Now, obviously, that crime could fit in any category, but we're putting it as fitting best in Quadrant 3, a spiritual crime, as the words of Jesus come to mind. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. In episode 21, we learned about the Krupp company bribing just about every Prussian official of consequence, also stealing war documents, also widespread bribery of government officials. This is a classic crime for Quadrant 2, to be condemned by national-minded people, as no matter how you slice it, they were dishonoring their country and undermining their own country's ability to wage war. Episode 22 covered Krupp's war profiteering, where they were literally getting paid per bullet used against German soldiers. That's going right back in quadrant two for the nationalists, as Krupp were certainly guilty of treason. In episode 23, we saw the Krupp company guilty of secretly rearming against the Versailles Treaty, We've finally got a crime for box four, something that the business community and the liberals could condemn as it broke the rules to the detriment of business and free trade, no less. In episode 24, the Krupp company started engaging 
in widespread looting of factories and equipment all over Europe. And then they enthusiastically participated in mass slave labor. This is going right there in Quadrant 3 as a spiritual crime. All the more so when we talk about the child concentration camps in episode 25 run by the Krupp Company. That's going right in Quadrant 3 as well. To quote Norm MacDonald, you might find this extreme, but I believe that everyone involved in this story should die. Now you can call me an extremist or something, but a truly civilized world would have put to death anyone involved in something like Bushmanshoff. The compromise, I suppose, would be life in prison. Barring even that, I suppose the next level of compromise would have at least been total confiscation of their property. That the Krupp company and its executives weren't shot in the back of the head, that they got out of prison, and that they kept their property, just shows the levels of depravity of this world. In episode 27, on the Nuremberg Trials, it was revealed that the Krupp company dumped all of their German treasury bonds. That's a crime for Box 2, for Quadrant 2, for the nationalists to condemn, as it shows that the Krupp company was literally treasonous yet again. In episode 28, the Krupp company expanded their business to include building infrastructure and factories in the third world, or exploiting them in other words. That's a crime for Quadrant 1, a crime for socialists to condemn, as Krupp was basically acting as a vampire, sucking up the blood of the third world. In this episode, we saw how Krupp, Alfred Krupp specifically, became the biggest failure in European finance. That's a crime for Box 4 or something that, that's something for the liberals and the businessmen to condemn. So, if we tally things up by my very scientific calculations, there are two crimes, two marks for Quadrant 1 for the socialist framework. There are three crimes in Quadrant 2 to be condemned by the nationalists. There are three marks in Quadrant 3 for spiritual crimes against humanity. And there are two marks in Quadrant 4 for the liberals and businessmen to condemn. I want to emphasize, this is science. I learned it from business school. All jesting aside, though, no matter what your framework, the Krupp dynasty committed massive crimes against good business practices, against international civility, against Germany, against the working class, and against humanity. But damn do they make a good elevator. And on that note, I must say that I used the book The Arms of Krupp, The House of Krupp, and Blood and Steel, and, to a lesser extent, the book The Brothers by Stephen Kinzer. Thank you for listening, dear listener. If you rode with me through 12 episodes of this horrible family, you know, I tip my hat to you. And if you like the show, just tell a friend. And if you want more content, check me out on Patreon. Now I need to be on my way. I'm headed to Kyongboken Palace. See you next week, and God bless. Durch Deutschland geht ein tiefer Riss, der spaltet die Nation. Ne Neuheit ist das nicht gewiss, doch von Interesse schon. Das Beispiel Krupp und Krause klärt den wirklichen Verlauf. Der deutschen Spaltung zugehört als Klassenfrage auf. Denn Krupp ist Monopolherr und Krause 
ist Polit, das ist der Klassengegensatz, den jedermann versteht. Der Boss der Industrie im Club der reichsten Herren Besitzt Fabriken, Zechen, die viel tausend Mann ernähren Als einer von zigtausend Mann steht Krause Tag für Tag In Krupps Fabrik zur Arbeit an, sein Stundenlohn fünf Mark Denn Krupp ist Monopolherr Und Krause ist Polit Das ist der Klassengegensatz den jedermann versteht. Was krausisch mündlich produziert, ist mehr als fünf Mark wert. Der Mehrwert wird von Krupp kassiert, weil dem das Werk gehört. Und tausenden Kollegen geht's wie Krause jeden Tag. Herr Krupp nimmt sich den Mehrwert stets als Kapitalertrag. Denn Krupp ist Monopolherr. Und Krause ist Polit, das ist der Klassengegensatz, den jedermann versteht. Ist Konjunktur und angespannt der Arbeitsstellenmarkt, wird Krause Partner Krups genannt, denn dann ist er gefragt, doch ist der Wirtschaftshimmel trüb, die Auftragslage flau. Dann droht den Krauses im Betrieb Entlassung, Lohnabbau. Denn Krupp ist Monopolherr und Krause ist Polit. Das ist der Klassengegensatz, den jedermann versteht. Die Spaltung hier in diesem Staat erklärt sich folglich so. Was Krupp an Macht und Reichtum hat, ist krauses Risiko. In anderen deutschen Staaten, da gibt es die Krupp nicht mehr. Da sind die Krauses selbst für wahr die Herren der DDR. Damit sich Krupp nie wieder dort etablieren kann, schlägt Krause für die DDR. 